Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Hey guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zenledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. Let's give a quick shout out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction, or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. With that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Omar Osden and Kevin O'Brien. Omar is the CEO and Kevin is the managing director of Rock Tree Capital. Thrilled to have you guys on. How's it going, guys? Tom, going great. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. Cupid is in the air. <laughs> yeah, definitely is a good day to record in person. I always love doing it um, in person. So, Omar, let's start with you. Let's go into a little bit about your bio just to preface the conversation for everybody. Um, I've never had somebody on with your amount of experience abroad in China and everything you're doing with Rocktree, so I'm really excited for this. Thanks. So I live in Beijing. I'm CEO of Rocktree Capital. Uh, we're at the nexus of the two largest blockchain and cryptocurrency markets, uh, North America and Greater China. And so our offices are in Beijing, New York, and Toronto. Um, but our real strong suit is China. We are a merchant bank. Uh, we have an investment fund as well. And so we provide advisory, particularly with respect to cross-border expansion and legal. Uh, we've got a legal compliance platform called Rocktree Lex. Uh, myself, I've I, um, been living in China for over 20 years. Uh, that includes Taipei, Hong Kong, and mostly Beijing. I was there. Um, this is the amazing thing. I got to see the rise of the internet industry in China. So when I first went up to Beijing into the mainland, that was 96 and the Silicon Valley of China was still dirt roads in, in Beijing. And 
then we set up two uh, startups in in the Silicon Valley area called Zhongguan uh, Sun. And we got to see the rise of internet. And later on, I went on to, I graduated law school after that. And I went on to work as a lawyer with uh, the startups that at that time, we had no idea where they were going to go, but they were Alibaba, Baidu, NetEase. Uh, we were working with Huawei, a whole bunch of other like companies that just have exploded and have, um, we did the original VC deals for them, uh, eventually IPOs on the NASDAQ, and we created the legal structure. At that point, there was um, investment, foreign investment into internet companies was totally restricted, not allowed. And we created a structure with the SEC and also with the Chinese regulators to open that up. Uh, that both would approve. And that brought in all the VC money into Chinese internet and eventually the rest of Chinese industry using the structure and IPO them on the US stock exchanges. And today we've got some of the biggest companies in the world. And and so we're doing the same thing for blockchain. We invest into uh, the future Baidu's, the future Alibaba's, the future NetEase's, as well as the future Facebook's. We we invest into both greater Chinese, Asian companies, as well as uh, U.S., North American, and some European as well. Uh, but our strong suit really is greater China and, and North America. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, so it's kind of naive of us here, but people in the U.S. and crypto do not get the news flow or the analysis that you guys get. I don't think anybody that I personally know very well has spent you know 20 years plus in China at all. What's the differences like? I mean, in culture and in investing, I mean, there's tidbits we hear about. Like I hear about the Chinese markets. People don't care about Web3 and DeFi. They're there to make money. They want to have tokens. They want to, you know, build a business. The cultures are so different. What's your high level on the differences there when it comes to that? I think that you're right. Like, Tom, you're absolutely right. The uh, cultures are very, very different. And sometimes, like, you can call it Mars and Venus different. So, you know, for me, I got lucky. I went there at a very, very early age. So I was able to have the challenges and also the successes in an early age. And I got to see what works and modify my approach. So to the point that I'm, I'm fluid there, but the fact is that it becomes a black box for many uh, non-Chinese trying to enter the market. And it's such an important market because it accounts for so much of the liquidity and innovation in blockchain and crypto as well as as well as finance in general but so i think like just i'm also uh from new york i'm a new york attorney and i can compare the two i think that new york is the fastest speed for the west and china is faster than new york in terms of transactional people do business really really quickly wow. make decisions really really quickly and you have like massive scaling of companies that you know, go from startup to being multi-billion dollar companies in even like 18 months. Jeez. It's really fast. We, we uh, invested, this is non-blockchain related. So we did uh, some non-blockchain related companies. I co-founded China's version of WeWork. Uh, it's called, it's China's largest co-working company. And uh, we were at Within, um, I'd say, two years, we're already at a $3 billion market cap. And so that's really fast. And we're at 200 locations now. Jesus. Uh, so um, we, we also invested into um, China's uh, one of the top e 
cigarette companies, and that's also scaled up really fast. But really, our focus is blockchain and crypto. And I think right now we're in the sort of early to mid-90s. So we're sort of at the cusp of catching the future mega uh, uh, blockchain companies. In terms of some differences, uh, in addition to speed and and scalability, um, I see like, I think time horizons are shorter in China. Like for the government, they're much longer, but for the people... Uh, I think the projects have shorter time horizons. And I think that, you know, comparing investments between the two, I do like the perspective of the American companies or Western companies in that regard. Management has typically a longer time horizon. Um, And so, like, for example, when we have cycles like the winters, the American companies and the Western companies seem to be more resilient. So that that also requires us to really, when we invest, we look at the teams. And so we got to make sure that they're responsible teams and they're going to, you know, be able to pivot when there's an issue and, and get through the winters. No, that, that's a really helpful caller. I want to, I have a ton of questions on, on China specifically, but I want to dive into Rocktree Capital a little bit just so people could understand where you're coming from, what you're targeting, everything along that nature. So you guys are doing a lot here to kind of unite China and America and, you know, hopefully be that bridge there. Where, what's the highest growth areas for you guys? What are you kind of positioning for in this year? Like what's the target for you guys to really grow the business here? Okay. So one thing that we see as a key driver for valuations is legal compliance. That is, you know, there's a Delta in terms of where companies are and where they need to be. Um, Everybody focuses on the tech But if a company doesn't pay attention to legal compliance, first of all, from an investor standpoint, it's not going to hit the valuation. There's a lot of risk and it could even go to a zero. So like that's important for management and and, um, investors as well. So we created a legal compliance platform two years ago, multi-jurisdictional lawyers that work with the blockchain projects. Whether we invest in them or not, they come to us and we help them navigate um, the global the global uh, framework in terms of what jurisdictions they'd be operating in or even token offerings, which are really important. That includes uh, a number of Asian markets. That includes what to do in Switzerland. That includes what to do or not to do in the United States, Canada, so forth. So it's it's a one-stop shop for blockchain legal compliance, and, and that's at rocktreelex.io. So if projects are out there, or if investors are concerned that their their legal compliance for their project is not good enough, come to us. That's what we focus on. Um, another area is um, we provide cross-border advisory for our companies, and that's critical. If you look at, you know, our mission, as you mentioned, is to, is to unite the two biggest blockchain markets in the world, which are North America and Greater China. And we believe that 75% of the innovation and liquidity is in these two markets. So if you're a serious blockchain company, you have to be strong in both markets. Otherwise, like you're not really global and you're just going to be local. And that's not the theme or ethos of blockchain at all. It's borderless. And so you really need as, as a U.S. company or as a Western company, you need to have a serious China strategy. You need to be localized. You need to have investors there. You need to have retail community there. You need to have development community, all of that. And you need to have PR. 
we um, we help the companies with actually developing the community with their PR, with their cross-border issues, developing a team, finding developers. That's that's really critical too. And then um, we see we see markets improving. Uh, when we didn't invest as much in 2019 as we did uh, in 2017 and and so forth, but we we see things picking up on the investment side. Early stage investments we. We funded two companies this month, uh, and so we see that picking up. And I think, you know, the the thing that your listeners need to be aware of is that there's going to be a major divergence coming up between West and East in terms of the activity of blockchain and the acceptance of tokens. Um, we already have very advanced regulatory frameworks for Japan, Singapore, uh, and a lot of um, users just generally in Asia for crypto. But, you know, the big dog on the block, which is China, uh, President, you know, Xi, the president of China, he made an announcement to the Politburo on October 24th that China should seize the opportunity to be the leader in blockchain. And he gave a top-down directive for all uh, government, SOEs, uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, major institutions to learn about blockchain, get active, and start devoting resources to it. And so we haven't seen that come. We're going to start seeing that come to fruition in 2020, 2021. That's a, you're going to see blockchain companies really growing fast. So, you know, compare that to the United States where we have some regulatory challenges. I think, uh, I think, you know, having top down endorsement uh, in the second largest, uh, market in the world, uh, is very significant. And that's, this is really the time to capture some of those up and coming companies that can, uh, that can scale up fast. Yeah. That's really great color. Uh, Kevin, sorry, I know you want to have him. Yeah. And to Omar's point, so you're talking about a population that unlike the West or United States or, or other media, is fragmented across other channels, whereas in the greater China market, people are unified across one social channel called WeChat. So you have effectively 1.3 billion people, 1.4 billion people on a singular platform. And now a top-down directive coming from the president himself. So if you think about the movement and how fast from a united um, front that population and industry and blockchain can actually move, it's quite rapid. Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't disagree there. I have a bunch of questions. I'll, I'll pose two to you guys and, you know, whichever's most interesting. The legal compliance aspect, it sounds, you know, people don't want to talk about it. It's boring. It's annoying to them. But I mean, just complying with U.S. regulations is almost impossible. Um, you guys are doing this for, you've done it for over 100 tokens, but I just it sounds so intimidating. Like, how do you comply with the US, Switzerland, China, Canada, like take your pick? Like, do you piecemeal it together for projects? Do you choose certain destinations for projects? How do you kind of wrestle with all those things? Yeah, it's, you know, we have to look at each project um, themselves. So projects from China would look different than projects from different parts of Asia would look different from projects from the United States and others. So it starts with that. And, I think, um, you know, my background, I used to be partner at U.S. in the New York office of uh, United States' largest firm. 
and um, I'm a 20-year securities attorney. Uh, even, even I would say the framework in the United States with respect to crypto is, is highly confusing and, and restrictive, but we have to navigate through that. That's, that's a part of it. And we've been working with Congress on that, actually. We could talk about that later. But um, in terms of every single project, we've saved a lot of, you know, great, great Western innovators where they were going to go through the U.S. route. And we said, hey, come on out to Asia. And where there is permissive regulation, where governments are not trying to really provide massive restrictions on it. And they're, they're embracing innovation. And that's happened. And so great innovators have been able to continue producing their product while some of them, if they didn't come to us or they didn't like think about that, they end up getting stuck in the mud or getting some sort of enforcement action against them. And so um, there is, you have to look at the jurisdictions and what jurisdiction works for each uh, project itself. But um, you can see the trend. You can see the trend. Facebook Libra Association set up in Singapore, uh, sorry, Switzerland. We've had a number of companies that we invested in or worked with also choose that jurisdiction. I think Singapore is a great jurisdiction. Um, there are others, too, that, that we work with. And I think also you need to really, the, the delta for companies is not just code, in terms of computer code, but it's code in terms of law. A lot of a lot of guys in the in the crypto community, it, especially two three years ago, it was just totally an afterthought. This remains the case for some in Asia as well, but that should be front and center for whatever perspective you're looking at for you know just peace of mind and 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 safety, but also you have to have a fiduciary duty to your investors and and your team and so forth and. So you need to look at that from a long-term perspective, how your legal compliance, if it's done right at the start, you're going to be able to build on that. For sure. And another question up to Sally is you guys um, obviously are no one's more in the weeds on a country by country basis than you guys on the laws here and the regulations. Do you think at a high level that the U.S. is losing their you know, potential lead, or they may not even have a lead. You know, there's a lot of corollaries to other industries here, like 5G, where the U.S. is straight up losing to Asia, Asian countries. Yeah, 100%. That's the case. And there's, you know, first, let me start out by saying that the best innovators are, uh, from my observation, coming from the United States. But from a regulatory perspective, uh, we're not permissive. In fact, most of the people in the industry saying that uh, we're stifling innovation. And I think you would agree with that, too. Yeah. And so we've been working with Congress. Uh, we prepared uh, guidelines on tokens and so forth. Uh, we were at the Libra hearings um, talking with congressional members. Um, and we also held a private briefing for Congress uh, two weeks ago so, um, on Capitol Hill and staffers about what we see from, you know, a perspective that's highly unique, which is, yeah, we understand the U.S. markets. We understand securities laws, but we're in Beijing right now and we're seeing a totally different trajectory mm. and a totally different narrative. And, and that's really important. I think, you know, one of the things that we um, mentioned to on our private briefing is that we think that right now, there's almost like a Plato's cave 
situation happening in the United States, where when you talk about crypto or digital assets, immediately the narrative is, oh, it's for terrorists, it's for drug pushers, it's for money launderers, and so forth. And in the rest of the world, it's about innovation. It's about growing the economy. It's about making money. And so, I mean, those are all the values and beliefs of America, innovation, economic growth, making money. And so, you know, that's a key point. It, it's where we're, we're the, the narrative has a problem. Um, I think that, you know, if you, if you look at American history and learn how we actually became great, Okay. In, in the 1850s, we were a top five nation, fifth in terms of market size. Uh, but what catapulted us to number one and like never to be replaced again as number one, it was exactly this. The, there was an 800 pound gorilla in the United States who controlled the kerosene market. Okay. And, and kerosene was an amazing thing because Rockefeller could light up people's homes for one penny a night. Jeez. Amazing. So he brought that out. And so kerosene was pervasive. Uh, But then we had two innovators come along, uh, one born in the U.S., Edison, and another an immigrant, Tesla. And uh, they developed commercialized electricity and also development of the killer app of electricity the light bulb. And what happened is the, we had the 800 power gorilla in the room. Um, the competitors to electricity, kerosene and others all saying electricity will burn you. Electricity will fry your kids. It's going to, it's going to burn down your house. And people were initially scared. I mean, if you think about electricity, even today, after using it for decades, I still don't understand it. I understand blockchain, I don't, you know, to a certain extent, but I don't understand electricity. And for people back then, when you have that narrative, you can imagine how scary it must be to them. But we, as a society, had the courage to adopt it. We first lit up downtown Manhattan, then we lit up the rest of the United States, and then the rest of the world. And what happened with that attitude of embracing innovation is that it spun off entire uh, industry based on electricity, which is really important. However, I would say the most important aspect of this story is not, and I I could call it the most American aspect of the story, is that it not only helped with innovation in terms of electricity, but it forced the 800-pound gorilla Rockefeller to also innovate. And he had to take kerosene and find the derivative byproducts and re-engineer that into gasoline. And what that did was it spurred the combustible engine market industry in the United States. So we had tractors and industry, and eventually we had the automobile, which then brought out the Model T mass production. And by 1910, when those were being manufactured and sold, we were, we catapulted to number one by 2x in that period of time, specifically because each time we chose, even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of, okay, there's risks here, we chose to do what makes us great, embrace innovation. And so cryptocurrency, blockchain, digital assets, whatever you want to call them, 
They're a technology. They're our movement into the digital economy. And they are about embracing innovation. And that, I think, should be the narrative. And I think that should be the top-down perspective uh, in the United States here today. Yeah, that's. I love historical examples like that. You can't see me staring, but I, I was really into that. I really like that narrative and that metaphor there. The other question along those lines, and I definitely agree that we need to have a leading push in the U.S., but I guess the other question here on a different tangent, I guess, Kevin, it kind of goes back to your point, is that the big brother aspect in China is a concern or it's a concern of us for them. But I don't know if people that live in China actually care. What's the look or the vision that you guys have there? Like, you know, does crypto make China a stronger big brother, more restrictive? Does it help? I'm just trying to wonder if people will accept it because you not only need the government to accept it, which you said, Omar, with the top-down mandate, but you need the people to also drive it too. What's your kind of take there? Well, uh, I'd start by framing it first is, well, you know, from an outside perspective, looking in at China, it might be perceived as surveillance. But I think what people are coming or waking up to in the United States and the West is this idea of data usage by the major big tech companies. So the branding from a China perspective could be considered surveillance, but we actually have surveillance capitalism here in the West where unbeknownst to a lot of us, we are being monetized from a data perspective, being surveilled. It's just that it's not as transparent, so to speak, from a China perspective. That's a good point. Facebook monetized all our data, but in the, you know, in the East, China monetized all their data. Right. Yeah. It's a good point. So I think to add to that too, you know, one of the things that I love about China, and this is, I, I got lucky to be there at an early age um, and see what's transpired over the past two to two and a half decades, is that China is a nation of early adopters. The people love innovation. They love to try new things. If they can make things efficient, make more money, grow the economy, whatever it is, they love to try it. And so uh, what Kevin was mentioning, WeChat, for example, um, that platform, you communicate with all your friends, you have conference calls. Of course, you pay for everything with that or Alipay, one of the two, WeChat Pay or Alipay. And that's used by eight-year-olds up to 80-year-olds. So like here, the people who might use Alipay would be 16 up to maybe 35. It's pervasive. WhatsApp is pervasive up to maybe 40 years of age. But you have senior citizens in China using WeChat. My wife is Chinese. So my parents-in-law, uh, Chinese New Year just passed, as you know. The, the tradition is to give a red envelope with currency in it, right? Cash, fiat. But what they did was this year, they sent it to me through WeChat as an electronic red envelope. You know, and they're 70 years old and my parents can't even work a DVD player. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> so so um, it's just there's there's an a, a, er, you know, early adopter culture there. So from the bottom up at the grassroots level, it's really good for what's what's going to be coming in the future. And what's you've seen, like what that's resulted to in the past 20 years in terms of technology, Internet. You mentioned uh, China's leaped ahead in 5G. Absolutely. Um, AI, you know, AI really, they only, China only started really getting serious about 2017. There was a, um, 
There's the um, DeepMind Google uh, AI computer that beat their top Go player. It's so a great documentary, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, amazing. It was their Sputnik moment. And so they uh, China went in two feet into AI, and now it's, it's uh, very competitive globally. Um, high-speed rail, uh, you know, I take the Acela from Washington to New York, and it's fastest is two hours and 45 minutes. On a Chinese train, that's 50 minutes to an hour. And so, like, you can do just go and have lunch, come back if you wanted to between cities, uh, you know, very quickly within four hours. You can Jesus do something like that. Hey, guys, I also wanted to tell you about Zen Ledger, the best tax software for cryptocurrency investors and accountants. It's fast and easy to use, and you can get all of your crypto transactions in one place so you can trade smarter and optimize your taxes. Zenledger offers 24-7 customer support by phone, email, or chat to help you get your taxes done stress-free, and it comes with a 100% money-back guarantee because they know you'll love it. Zenledger is giving an exclusive 15% discount to our listeners when you use coupon code CHAIN15. Go to zenledger.io, linked in the show notes below, to get started and get your taxes done fast. Let's give a quick shout-out to our wonderful sponsor, eToro. The best way to be smart about trading crypto is to use the smartest trading platform. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with extraordinarily low fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, you can practice on the platform with their virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 11 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. You can create an account at b.tc slash eToro reaction or click the link below in your show notes. Just scroll down on your phone, click the eToro link, and it'll bring you right to their website. So I'm a research analyst. We do institutional reports, ton of analysis, but all, most of the stuff we cover is either anonymous teams or domiciled somewhat in the US. Obviously, we cover projects outside. I don't think I see half, maybe even. I only see probably some percent of real analysis or news out of China that I can then also trust. What percent do you think people, our listeners in the U.S., actually get out of China? Because it seems like it's a very slim number with everything going on. Less than 15 percent. 15. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite low. Like if it's a major issue, um, you know, uh, everybody will get it. But then... The issue with that is what's the what's the framework around that? Like sometimes information is spun, things are left out. Uh, sometimes there's an agenda and so forth. And so, you know, in terms of like accurate real information, it's maybe fifteen percent, and then you can add another fifteen percent of information that may have a skew on it, a spin on it. But uh, in terms of what's really happening in the grassroots, you have to live it. You have to be there. I would say that for the blockchain and digital asset market in mainland China, now I'm not counting Singapore, Hong Kong, and so forth, but in mainland China, we are, uh, I would say, the deepest, or you can, you know, at least amongst the deepest embedded into the grassroots market for digital assets in China and also at the institutional level. So it's, there's not a lot of Western penetration. There's not a lot of Western penetration. Yeah. I, yeah. 
some people I've spoken to in the past, they always say that their company needs a, you know, Asian strategy if you're from the U.S. and they, you know, send people from the U.S. out there. And it generally goes horribly when the mind is just hire somebody out there on the ground. It's what you guys do uh, best. The other question I have for you is that you're talking about all the innovation going on in China, high speed rail, tech laws. It's all accelerating. But in the U.S., we're kind of you know, dare I say, ignorant about where they'll be in 10 or 20 years from now when all the building is happening now. What's your take on where China will be in 10 or 20 years? Do you think there will actually be some type of, you know, inflection point in crypto where China just totally gets away from us? I think that we're going to see that over the next two to three years. Uh, I think that, you know, we've been given the top-down directive. I believe that you know, China had their Sputnik moment for crypto with the announcement of Libra. And shortly thereafter, you could see um, statements by the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, about how this is an important area to pay attention to. And um, there's something called DCEP, which is the digital currency of the central bank there. Uh, the PBOC started working on that in 2014, so six years ago. Um, that's how far ahead of the curve they are. Like we haven't started yet, uh, here. So, um, so 2014, that initiative started, it was slowed down for a period, uh, uh, between 2017 to 2019, but it's been expedited since. And so we're on the brink of release of that digital currency. And then we also have, um, China's own blockchain as well, uh, network being developed. And I think that those two combinations are going to really invigorate the use of blockchain uh, adoption at the China level and even global level. Um, it's it's also invigorating other central banks to take a look at their own digital currencies. Um, you know, the stat was like three months ago that it was 70% of central banks either developing or researching their own digital currency, but now it's 80%. Um, and you know, that is the amazing thing about blockchain, okay? It's that 11 years ago, we were a white paper on the internet. And in approximately a decade, you have 80% of the highest level institutions in the world actively researching and developing based on that technology. That didn't happen with internet. The internet white papers first came out in the early 60s. And you know, we obviously we didn't have Internet as the fundamental layer uh, to be able to accelerate things. And and we didn't have P2P at that time. But just you can see that time has um, for blockchain has accelerated in um, in China. We have a saying, which is Bi Chen Yitian, Ren Jian Yinian, which means a day in the life of somebody in crypto is a year for anybody else. <laughs> and you know, like you're in the yeah. industry, your listeners, you know, are investors in the industry, maybe projects in the industry. Time has accelerated. Uh, things move fast, partially because of the web aspect, partially because primarily because of the P2P aspect of blockchain. I saw, and I was a part of the earliest internet companies, at least for China um, and some in the United States. And we felt, time accelerating at that time. But, you know, I felt it accelerate again with blockchain. And there are a lot of similar hallmarks with uh, internet. Uh, but also, I think there's some areas that are dramatically even more pronounced 
I think time. I love the quote. Totally couldn't be more spot on. The other question for you guys is, so you guys have a VC arm within Rocktrick app. The question there is, you know, you guys have really good um, interest into um, and color into different countries, geographies around the world. How do you kind of go about investing globally? I mean, because if you have a thesis on China, like winning, but, you know, you want to invest in that market, but you see a great project, you know, pop up in another geography, but it might be constrained by regulations, stuff along that nature. Does how much does that play into your thesis? Because honestly, we don't really think about domicile because crypto is just global at this point. But for you guys, it's a totally different game because you have real info into it. Right. So I think each market has their own um, advantage. But, you know, again, I said at the top of our discussion that I think the best innovation is coming out of the United States and, and Canada, too. Though, though North America has um, some of the best innovation and some of the best innovators. But from a top down perspective, it's not happening here. And I can say that with my experience as a securities attorney. I mean, you know, the regular, it's really the regulatory framework that's, that's hampering us in addition to the narrative. And so you have the projects here, but the adoption is primarily in Asia. Obviously, there's adoption here. There's adoption in other markets too. But, you know, in Japan, people were adopting Bitcoin on a larger scale four or five years ago, uh, six years ago. And Korea is a very active market. Um, China has, I would say, the highest liquidity, uh, you could say greater China in the world. You know, obviously, a lot of the largest exchanges come from there. So I think with respect to the projects themselves, we love Western projects, uh, particularly U.S. ones and some Canadian ones, too. Uh, but those projects definitively need to take a global perspective if they're going to if they're going to scale. And they need to think about how they're structured too. But in terms of in terms of Asian projects, we see some good ones out of Korea. We see some great ones out of uh, Greater China. But you know, uh, sometimes they're basically what we call a Chinification model of uh, a U.S. project. So, for example, I mean, you know, Tron to Ethereum, <laughs> right? Exactly. So the. Um, you know, we, we see that, but that's okay. That's like when we did Baidu, that was just the Chinese version of Google. Um, and, and look it, at Baidu now. Yeah, look at Baidu now. Yeah. Exactly. The, so on that thread, um, and this come, plays into the amount of research analysis we actually get here. I only hear about, I only mostly hear about the larger projects in China. And some of them are, you know, scammy, to be honest. Tron, EOS, take your pick. But it seems like Two things. One, we're not getting the research on the sub 100 mil projects that we should be getting here because we see a ton of them that are based here popping up. The other thing is, it seems like the projects on the larger scale in Asia are getting better. So we went from Tron to EOS. Now we have things like Polkadot, where I have my concerns, but it's you know a much better project. Are you kind of seeing the same thing there? Yeah. So uh, I think, especially for our investment thesis, we're early stage investors. We like to come in as early as possible. And, you know, part of that is making sure that the team is good. That, that's a big part of what we look at because at least projects can pivot. Getting those projects at the earliest stage is critical in a rising market. And, and so we see that, like, for example, a great project from China, Nervos, uh, 
they really only came out here and were on the, the radar here in, in uh, I think their valuation was, I, I don't know the exact valuation, but around 300 million around there. And, and so that's kind of late, like in the game. Uh, but if they did have, the good thing is they had a lot of uh, participation and, and we've worked with Nervos for, uh, you know, the past 18 months, even, even longer than that. They've helped us on a number of projects and we invested and so forth. They're a great team. Um, but there are other projects like that coming out of China and, um, you know, wallets, uh, some finance related, obviously exchanges, uh, you know, we, Huobi is an investor in us and we partner with them. You know, they are the largest exchange in China and they grew massively, uh, and, and their liquidity is, is gigantic. And, and so, you know, a company like that, for example, in the, in, in one of the crypto sandboxes that China has in, it's in Hainan Island, Huobi actually has their own building like their own tower with Huobi labeled at the top. So like there's the Baidu building and then the Huobi building right beside it because it has so many employees, employees and such a presence that is, you don't see like a Coinbase building in New York or San Francisco or anywhere like that. No way. But you see that you're seeing that in China, like that's the type of scale that you're getting, but to be able to participate in that, you have to get early stage. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm glad you brought up Nervos. That's a really good example because that's a solid team, two-token model that makes a lot of sense. Um, and they have a really cool kind of token economic model, which you know we can't really get into here, but inflation tax, state run, stuff like that, they're doing that are really interesting. So the next question I think for you is that just shifting gears a little bit, you know, what does Bitcoin mean in Asian countries? I feel like here it means a lot, but there it doesn't. Uh, no, or less. <laughs> Bitcoin is really important. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought it meant like less to them than us because they're building out so many different layer ones, but I wasn't too sure. No, I think, you know, when you talk about them building out so many layer ones, like you got to think, you know, a part of the theme that we were saying to Congress is that Americans are going offshore. And so when you talk about a project like EOS, that's an American who went over to Hong Kong to develop that. And so is that really a Asian project? If I don't, I wouldn't count it necessarily as one, but um, you know, they're, they're global, but on your question itself, Chinese love Bitcoin. Okay. Bitcoin is the purest form of what we believe is blockchain. And in fact, I'd say almost, you know, proof of stake here in the United States has had a quicker adoption than proof of stake in China. It's we're now starting to see um, a lot more adoption of proof of stake and people getting comfortable with it. But there's so many, like for example, for our uh, crypto fund, that's completely in BTC, and the partners, you know, are some of the earliest OGs of of uh, of crypto in China. It's all Bitcoin proof of stake. We developed an OTC desk. We just acquired it and, and uh, we work with all the biggest, uh, except for the largest one, the miners in China. We work closely with them um, in terms of uh, financing solutions for them. It's all mining Bitcoin. No, I'm, gl- I'm glad I asked because I had a few conversations and people were like, you know, we love Bitcoin out there, but we're building something else. So I'm glad to hear the real story from you there. 
The other question is on the digital one. I mean, uh, U.S. dollars, obviously global reserve currency, but you know, for the macro guys in the room, that's you know potentially fading away over the long term. There's a lot of reasons why. What's your take on this battle between yuan, U.S. dollar, and if they're able to actually tokenize or, or really digitize it in a token form in China? So I don't think that there is any competition between the U.S. dollar and renminbi right now because renminbi is not a convertible currency. So you know it's U.S. dollar domination, and and that's being great for the world. Uh, but also, you know, everybody believes in competition, and I think that that would be a good thing for the world too. So, what is what's going to happen with DCEP? So DCEP is the is the digital currency. It's it's uh, it's the legal uh, digital currency of of China, and it's going to be first released domestically. And it means that everybody has to accept it. If somebody offers it, they have to accept it. And it's real settlement based on the blockchain. So there's no intermediary. It's actual P2P settlement, um, which is an amazing thing. Like it's, it's so, but, you know, that process to get people to adopt that, I don't think will take that long. Why? Because China already uh, moved to being a cashless society. So, for example, in our co-working company, Ucommune, we, I watched it with my own eyes. It took about six months. Uh, that was about three years ago, approximately. About six months for us to move from a cash-based economy on our platform to a totally cashless. And I think for the first and tier two, tier two cities in China, this is just my own personal observation. I saw it occur in about a year time. So obviously, you know, guys who are in our co-working spaces, they're earlier, they're even more about embracing new technology and so forth. But the rest of China in the first and second tier cities, it's about a year to go completely cashless. So you take your mobile phone and you take your keys and you got your ID and that's it. That's all you need. And you're not rummaging for nickels or paper. You're just always just scanning QR codes. That's the way it goes. And whether that's like... That's a formal POS uh, or it's actually a fruit seller on the street, even sometimes beggars on the street, like they will use QR codes. It's like pervasive. So I think based on that, DCEP will have a pretty fast um, uptake in domestically in China. But then uh, we got to look at globally what's going to happen. And so, you know, it's really the application of blockchain, which is great. You're going to have a combination of trade finance, uh, cross-border trade finance, payment through DCEP, um, also uh, settlement, um, logistics. You can do just-in-time inventory and so forth, all on the blockchain, very efficient. And that will eventually start to be rolled out with China's top trading partners. And what that looks like really, you know, I think if you take a look at what the IMF is posting, they posted something where, you know, in 1980, the color blue represented all the countries where U.S. was the dominant trade partner and red represented where China was. And really, there were only two red countries at that time, which was China and another country. I think it was in the Middle East or Africa. I can't remember. That was in 1980. But fast forward to 2018, where the where the IMF GIF video uh, ended, you know, all of Asia was pretty much all red, Eastern Europe, red, most of Africa, 
Australia, New Zealand, parts of South America, like some of South America. So like you're going to see Central Asia start adopting this. Um, You're going to see Southeast Asia, some parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, You're going to see perhaps Eastern Europe and I think definitely parts of Africa start moving in this direction. So that's what's coming down the pike, I'd say, over the next three to five years. Uh, we'll see how fast it, it, you know, adoption isn't always that fast. It could take longer. Uh, but I think that that really um, is something that people should be taking a look at. Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess the other question for you on that thread is that you've been referencing this top-down mandate throughout the podcast, kind of for China to accelerate innovation, spending, et cetera. It seems kind of at odds with the Western way where people are starting their own projects. They're making a lot of money. That's their incentive. They're growing out a team in this respect. It's the government spending all the money, but then it comes down to who owns it, who are the stakeholders. It just seems like a very flipped model, but I don't think people should also discount how much money China will put into the space, which is enormous compared to how big the space is now. What's your kind of flow of funds take there? Like China's spends a lot of money, then they own it, like, but it's hard to incentivize the world then because they control it. Like, I guess, how do you think through the government investing in the space at a high level? So it's not going to be just the government. Uh, there will be government investment. Then there will be the state-owned enterprises, which are a proxy to the government uh, in some respects. But it's going to be a lot of private investment. There's already, there's already a very active VC market in China um, for tech, and it's second only to the United States um, in terms of dollar amounts and activity. And there are many crypto funds and obviously a lot of retail investors and so forth. So they're already investing into the companies. But now you're going to see private enterprise coming in. We, we see already uh, the Shenzhen Stock Exchange, which is like comparable to the London Stock Exchange they've released their blockchain index. So they have a, an index of the top 50 companies listed in Shenzhen that have blockchain ventures, either there's a subsidiary or they're fully blockchain based. That's amazing. I mean, they have an index already of the top 50 companies on the stock exchange. So you're going to see more publicly listed companies trying to acquire companies in this space, invest into development teams, That's an opportunity for some American projects as well, uh, because, you know, there will be there will be an emphasis on domestic technology. But, you know, technology is really uh, neutral in that respect. The best tech wins. You know, the best ideas win eventually. Um, And that's the beautiful thing. It's merit based. And so um, that's an opportunity for Western companies, too. And and obviously Western investors, because there's going to be more capital moving in, in China. It's a fair point. And two last questions for you on that thread and then wrap up. But what does this mean for the average Chinese citizen? Like, what is, does crypto give them more control, more freedom? Or is it the flip side of this where they don't care and the government uses technology to make the economy and country better? That's a very good question. Really good question. I think that, you know, what is the specific definition of crypto? decentralized, uh, permissionless. And there are a number of, of offerings now, like for example, Libra, DCP that don't fit that definition. From my perspective, it's all good. All of this is related to adoption. You have 
major Fortune 100 tech company coming out with their own version of what they call cryptocurrency. We know it's not, but it's okay. That's related to adoption. And DCEP is also a step towards that. So if you have if you have um if you have people using this, they also adopt what um is tangential to it, which is pure crypto. And one of our investment theses in China is something we call which means Wall Street 2.0. And where we see um, the first disruption for crypto, for blockchain is in finance. And we're already seeing it. We're seeing how a blockchain is making significant shifts in finance. But I think that's where we're going to see the earliest real disruption And we'll see it in, you know, we'll see, I think we'll see it here. We'll see it in Asia. Um, And for Chinese, uh, for Chinese, they love technology. They love embracing technology. So whatever it is, it's, it's, it's good. Now, that's a really, really good color and insight. Last question for you is on coronavirus. I have to ask, you know, you've spent so much time in, in the area out there. It's, it's hard not to ask you what exactly does coronavirus mean for crypto is the government lying about the numbers is the question everybody else will probably wonder. Um, what do you think that means for crypto long term? So first of all, it's a very difficult situation in China. I'm on calls with our partners, investors, our employees um, on a daily basis. Uh, and many of them are actually in quarantine right now. That's horrible. Like it's terrible. Yeah, that's and, terrible. And it's a very difficult situation. So I just want to say to any listeners out there, Jiao uh, Wuhan, Jiao Zhongguo, you know, we we're all, everybody's pulling for you. My home is Beijing and uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a very difficult time right now. I got lucky the, you know, I was here for the holidays, uh, Chinese new year. And just, I came just before then. And, and it just, like it will, it's, we can't even return. We can't get back in. And uh, even if we got in, we wouldn't be able to get out. So that's a tough situation. I think with respect to crypto, um, and this is something that uh, Bloomberg just uh, interviewed me on recently, and um, we're writing an article in China for this. China's moving to the, to more digital based economy. That's what it's for crypt, uh, the virus is forcing China to do. So You've seen what's happened with Bitcoin over the past, uh, I would say, 45 days. Um, and you've seen what's happened to Ethereum approximately around that time and altcoins over the past two or three weeks as well. And uh, this is related to many factors, including the halvening coming up and other things, Ethereum moving to 2.0 um, and eventually proof of stake. But I think that one of the driving factors is that the entire blockchain community in China is sitting at home on their mobile phones doing something we call chow bi, which is just trading tokens. And because they don't have that much better to do, they can do remote meetings, but like they're, they're locked up indoors. And so they're trading. You see the markets are much more active. Um, that's happening. There's also been a major correction in the domestic stock markets, equity. Uh, we call those the A-share markets. Uh, right after Chinese New Year, there was hundreds of billions of dollars of value wiped out. So I think like what's happening is 
traditional investors that may have straddled both markets, digital assets and, and equity, traditional equities, are now like looking at digital assets much more seriously and spending more time on them. And maybe even some newbies are starting to come in too because of this. So you're seeing the results of that real time right now. And, and I think you'll continue to see it in the future. I'm very hopeful that, uh, you know, eventually the, the, the virus will be contained. Just generally, one good thing is a lot of viruses tend to peter out as the weather gets warmer. That's just, you know, flu starts turning into cold. Uh, and so I hope that happens in addition to the government's efforts. But I think like just right now you're seeing like at least in the near term, you're seeing more activity in altcoins um, and plus Bitcoin. Yeah, no, it's a terrible virus. Any listeners out there, I feel it's terrible and I hope it gets resolved um, quickly. Anything we could do to obviously help, happy to do that. Um, but it is really good color to hear that people are at home with their phones because you see pictures of streets empty and you don't realize everyone's inside researching and tokenizing. Omar, Kevin, it's been excellent having you guys on. I don't get this type of insight often. And I want to also thank you, Ryan, for setting this up. Really appreciate that. Gorman Agency as well. Guys, tell us where we can follow Rocktree Cat. What's the best way for people who are interested in learning more and, and about you guys? So I think like LinkedIn is, you know, PDP and connect with us on LinkedIn. Both Omar and I are pretty active there. But rocktreelex.io is uh, a great starter to get familiar with what Rocktree does and our value that we deliver into the marketplace, operating at the nexus of North America and Greater China. So rocktreelex.io, but please do connect with both of us on LinkedIn and we'll happily converse there. Yeah, for sure. Everyone listening, if you scroll down, Omar and Kevin will be linked um, in the show notes. Just get at them on LinkedIn. You can also check out rocktreelex.io. That'll also be linked. Guys, I really want to thank you for your time and uh, coming on. Awesome. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks. And to your audience, happy Valentine's Day. Yes. Happy Valentine's (laughs) Day, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.